Hi, my name is Shani Jamila, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to Lineage. This show is actually part of my practice as a conceptual artist. My work, which is made in response to centuries of family records meticulously researched by my genealogist grandmother, explores ancestry, identity formation, and the idea of home. On Lineage, I host intimate, in-depth conversations with fellow socially engaged Black artists about these same themes. Today, I'm thrilled to welcome Camila Forbes, who's an award-winning director and producer for theater and television. She currently serves as the executive producer at the world-famous Apollo Theater in Harlem. Her directing credits include, by the way, Meet Vera Stark, written by Lynn Nottage, Blood Quilled by Katori Hall, and Sunset Baby by Dominique Morisot. Her most recent directorial work, an adaptation of Ta-Nehisi Coates' seminal work, Between the World and Me, aired as a special event on HBO. Our conversation was recorded from our respective homes in Brooklyn. I opened by asking her what she knows about her birth story. Let's listen into her response. So you know what was so interesting? So my mom is here with us, and um, right now she's visiting. And um, one of the stories that I love to tell my daughter, like to help her go to sleep, is I always tell her the day she was born, like what literally happened around the day she was born. And so, um, and so I, I told her once, and now she requests it every day, and she asks for certain details, and I leave them out. So it's interesting now having my mom here. Is then I was like, well, let me ask her, like, what was my, you know, story? So I was born in Chicago. Um, my parents um, were Im- immigrants from Jamaica, um, and they came here to find other opportunity. And they came here actually to go to school. They came to this country to start school. Um, my mom um, was in med school at the time uh, that I was born. Um, and she talks about it. I was due in April. Um, and my dad also was in school. I think he was in business school or doing some degree program and working at the same time. And, um, and they lived on the South side and my mom, I was due in April, um, which was supposed to be the end of April. So it's like, you have that break study period. And so I guess that's how it timed out. Um, so she was, you know, in those long days, classes, et cetera. But I actually came about two months early. Um, oh. I came March 1st and was the day of my birth. And um, and so because two months when she started feeling contractions, she didn't think it was anything um, until she went to the doctor. And they said, you know, no, this is it. This is uh, you should come back and uh, you're going to have this baby. <laughs> and I'm sure she was like, but I've got class and a, <laughs> and a, and a quiz tomorrow. I can't, this isn't going to work. <laughs> but in any case, I came um, quite early um, and on the south side of Chicago and was a four pounds uh, little early baby. Um, yeah, so, um, but it's always interesting kind of hearing that story and just um, thinking about becoming a parent. Um, and sometimes not even thinking about how that how that really affects um, your life, um, the, the course of your life. 
um, will build. And even just thinking when I hear my mom say that, like she was really trying to time it out. Like, okay, I'm gonna, just, she's just going to slide right in right here. And children do the exact opposite, right? They're like, nope, surprise. Right. Actually, no. I have my own agenda. Too much early. <laughs> I got another, exactly, another agenda. So um, I kind of love hearing that because I think I've always been that. Really, that's what you want to do? Well, I got another agenda. I got another plan. <laughs> I feel like that's been the theme of my life. <laughs> yes, ma'am. <laughs> I love my that. My own agenda. <laughs> I love it. Well, what's the story you tell your daughter? Because I know her birth um, basically coincided with when you started work at the Apollo. She arrived just a few months beforehand, yeah? Yes. Oh, my God. Look at you. Yes. She, um, so the story I tell her is that actually... That morning, I remember um, she came in May, and um, that was the announced that I was actually going to start the Apollo um, the week that she came, um, like the day of. I want to say I was in labor, and um, and so I remember that morning being on a call and like yeah, with my like my new my new the new place I was going to work or a new employer. Yeah. And like I'm having contractions and I knew it was contractions and we had called the doctor and I was like, hey, guys, so I'm going to be unavailable after today because this is happening now. <laughs> Come on, professionalism. <laughs> and, um, Wait a minute. Yes. So you're literally. <laughs> yes. It was you're literally experiencing labor pains and you're still like handling business on, on the phone. Conference call. My on God. Conference call. Yeah. With, with Mickey Shepard. And I, I remember I would go on. We were she was literally trying to like pass the reins and I would go on mute step away and just sort of have a couple contractions. What? And I'd come back, say I'm back. And then at the end of the call, I was like, so today is going to probably be the last day because this is, it's how I'm in labor now. And we're just going to make this happen. And um, I remember, and then after that, my husband and I, we went to the park to go walk around to get it going. We had some Mexican food to get that hot and spicy. And I, I <laughs> and then I came home and sat in a tub. Yeah. And so I tell her all these things that, you know, all the sequence of events that happened. But yeah, it started, started with a conference call. <laughs> Which is kind of wild. Yo. About, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Black women, man. Yes. Yes. And I would tell you, it's funny because that was like, after that, I felt the strongest I've ever, like the most confident, like, I feel like I could do anything Mm. after that. You know, it's so interesting. I really, I think a lot about this idea of like origin stories, you know, Mm. and and how they shape us and, and what they mean for us and how we how we draw not only strength from it, like you're saying, but also how how it really kind of creates the the meaning of our lives. It gives us these parameters to work within when we think about like the how of it all, you know, as individuals and also as a people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. You know, sometimes we forget. Although it's so funny, yes, because I do tell Satya her origin story all the time. Mm-hmm. We forget that it's. Um, that just that defines us in a way, right? Those those circumstances, um, that moment. That's so interesting. Yeah, so interesting. Mm. Wow. Well, let's fast forward a bit. Tell me about growing up in Chicago. What was that like yeah. for you? Yeah. So growing up in Chicago, um, do you know Chicago was such a a, a a calm city. It's a big city. 
um, with real sort of a, a, a Southern pace, a Southern sensibility, you know? Um, so it's, we don't, you know, uh, and, and I, and I love that about it. And I think that has really influenced, I think a part of who I am is this idea of pace. There's a real intentional, like Southern drawl to Chicago, right? Like the way people talk, the way people move, although there's big skyscrapers, like, you know, they move different. Um, I love growing up there, you know, made a lot of lifelong friends from Chicago. But also at the same time, you know, Chicago is, um, it's not a coastal city. So, you know, when we talk about, the, and, and, and therefore it is a very segregated city, mm-hmm. um, you know, and I think that my parents being from Jamaica, we didn't have a lot of that sort of international vibes growing up in Chicago. So I think growing up, there was always like, well, how do I, how do, from an identity perspective, like how do I fit in and where do we find, you know, even others that, you know, are like me or sit in the same boat? And there weren't a lot. There weren't a lot. Um, and again, it was also extremely segregated as well. Yeah. So um, I, I think a lot of my even growing up was always a sort of yearning for, um, um, you know, this other sort of international spaces, um, faster pace spaces, um, which is why I think I was gravitated to sort of the coastals, um, and particularly the East Coast. Um, but, but, but obviously took a lot of the Chicago with me, you know, to the East Coast. Yeah. I'm assuming because you all, um, because your parents immigrated in that you didn't have a lot of family in Chicago. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, funny, they're actually, the Jamaicans that I did know in Chicago were my family because there was oh. like a, a little immigration pod. So um, I had a great, I have a great aunt that moved, a great uncle and therefore cousins from there. And then, you know, they found other, um, to create community. They, they really definitely tried to create that community, although there weren't many um, outside of who I considered my immediate family. Mm-hmm. Um, they definitely found um you know, community. So I definitely had some cousins that were out there that I grew up with, um, and then some sort of extended cousins of cousins of cousins. So did you also go back to Jamaica, like regularly? Was that a part of your childhood to visit family at home? I did, yeah. So when I was actually young, young, because um, my parents were still in school, like I told you, you know, there was that exam. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> after after I was um, after I was born, I actually got to live in Jamaica. I was sent to live in Jamaica when I was a baby. Oh wow! Um, with my with my grandmother, and that I think also was one so defining for me because um, I think you know I, I always you know always feel this incredible bond with my grandmother. Um, and I think from early on, you know, I literally had that bond with her because I was there with her as a baby and they were, my aunts and uncles were, there were some that were still there living with her as sort of teenagers or mm-hmm. young adults, but, you know, but, you know, so I was, I was in that mix as one of the kids, um, That's with, awesome. with grandma growing up. So I, yeah. And I think that also really helped me even further have this yearning to Jamaica. And, um, so not only spending that early time with her, but then summers. My mom would send me and my brother back for summers. 
and um, so valuable. Even though at the time, you know, my, my friends were going to camp at the YMCA and I was like, I want to go with the other kids. Uh-huh. But, you know, I think about it. It's like, wait, you don't want to go to Jamaica. <laughs> you want to go to the YMCA camp of the block, <laughs> you know. Um, but I'm so thankful that they did because it was those life, those, those life experiences that really helped to define, I think, my my yearning for culture, my yearning for history, I think being around elders in that way, even my yearning for just for storytelling, mm. um, because, you know, just thinking about just, I think being around elders like that, you know, you, you hear a lot of stories you get to, you, you become as a kid, you definitely become a listener, mm-hmm. um, far more listener being around you know, people like that. Yeah. I mean, I'm thinking back to the story you shared in the, in the film that we did, we hold these truths. Um, to launch this this podcast season, and you're talking about your grandmother, uh, and and sharing the story about one lesson that she taught you. We always have enough to give. Yeah, and you know it's funny because I think it was also that time. So, my grandmother, in her home, at any given time, there were obviously you know her kids that were living with her. But then other extended kids, her sister's kids, like me, her grandchildren, right? There were, I had other cousins that, her sister, her brother's kids, that families who had moved abroad were trying to make a better way for their, um, you know, had moved abroad, whether it was New York, whether it was Chicago, whether it was England, and, and, and needed additional support because they didn't have that extended family there in, you know, these new countries. And ultimately, then would send their kids back home, where there's where that support still resided, and that support was in my family was my grandmother's house. So many times there was always several many cousins of us living in her house or staying with her, or you know my cousin from the country who you know the countryside in Jamaica who would come to the city because her house was in Kingston mm-hmm. who w- was sent there to live with her in the city and, and be raised and go to school in Kingston etc so there was always sort of this abundance of, of kids in her in her house and um and I think she always played that role of like I will always you know if you come to my house there's always enough there's always enough to give I saw her with our neighbors I remember there was a neighbor who worked up the block um, who I was very close with her daughter, um, who was my playmate during the summers. And um, there were times that you could tell, I remember hearing, storytelling, hearing my grandmother talk about, you know, they had fallen on hard times. So she would really send her daughter to my grandmother's house and like with a can of condensed milk. Hmm. Um, and, you know, because clearly they'd fallen on hard times even just to feed their own family. And my grandmother would take them in to say, don't, don't worry, no, we'll take care of her. And, um, and she and that daughter became, you know, I became very close, but I saw that act from, from her, this idea, which was quite frankly, quite selfless and generous, that I, that spirit of generosity is something she always exhibited and always exuded. And I really take that with me, you know, not just in physical material things, but it's even how you hold space for other people, mm. um, that I'm, it doesn't have to be all about me and my immediate family there's always you know there's how do we make space for others you can always and and not even how this notion that you can always make space for others um and you should always make space for others is something yeah i i I treasure you know i still i'm you know dream of living there um Mm. with my family um to give Satya, a very similar experience and just connecting and just the importance of connecting her to like legacy 
connecting history, connecting just to your family roots, um, just so that she knows, you know, where you come from mm-hmm. and, and who you come from and sort of and who that lineage is. Say their names, know their names. It's important. It's so important. How far back can you trace? Mm. So um, what I do know is probably my great, great grandmothers and fathers on both sides. Um, what I do know is my great um so my great-grandmother, who I knew growing up, because she also lived with my grandmother when I was there, um, Frances Raby, um, she, um, again, came from the countryside of Ipswich, um, St. Elizabeth. And, um, and then her parents, who were the Rabies, um, she was one of 12. So my great-grandmother was one of 12. Mm-hmm. Um, and then my great grandmother had five children, mm-hmm. um, and so it's a really interesting story. Um, my great grandfather, I don't know much about. He was um, his name was Isaacs. His last name was Isaacs, so that's my grandmother's father. He was apparently a, a, a white Jewish settler. Oh. oh, he worked on the railroad or something. Not settler. He worked on the railroad. In coming through Ipswich, um, that's all we know, um, or that's all I've been told. <laughs> now, I've heard you tell that's, a different story, I guess, about a different great-grandfather who went to Cuba and was cutting uh, sugar cane. Yes. Yeah. So, my, so exactly. So my great-grandmother's first husband was Isaacs, mm-hmm. who's actually my grandmother's biological father. Got it. But the man who raised her um, um, was a guy, his last name was McIntyre. Mm. And he is my great grandfather, and he's the one. Um, um, so that's the one that the family, you know, who raised my grandmother, who raised all of my other great aunts and uncles, and who my mother knows as grandpa. Um, and he's the one who bought this ring that I have on here. Oh, beautiful! Went to Cuba um, and got this ring for my grandmother. Um, and uh, my, my sorry, my great grandmother um, worked there to cut sugar cane um, in the I guess it would have been the early 1900s ish, um, and went there to make some money, um, cut sugar cane, and and bought this ring while he was there, and um, knowing that he was going to come back and find a wife and start a family. So he bought and the ring so, before he met before. his wife. That's right. So we're talking about vision. Right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, right? So this man said, I am going to create me a family and this is going to help. Yes, let me buy it now. <laughs> yes. Like, talk, right? talk about vision. Like, I got the ring in my pocket. I got the money in my pocket. All I need is the lady. <sighs> yeah. That's something. It's so something, you know, and I... I get so inspired by that story because, again, there's such intentionality mm-hmm. of legacy building in that story. To say that being like literally literal fruit of the labor is like, oh, you really wanted us here. You wanted me here. You willed me into being. Mm. Um, mm, and mm-hmm. that's something that is real powerful to me, you know, which is why I think I hold on to that story. Like, okay, I didn't just come happenstance. Mm. 
you know, I was, um, you know how they say your ancestors' wildest dreams? I like to hold on to that. And literally wear a memory of it on and your wear hand. A of it. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. what a beautiful story. Yeah. 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 I'm good tearing up talking about it. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's so meaningful. Yeah. And to also yeah. be able to have like an actual physical memento and reminder that you can keep right. with you. That's right. It comes back to this idea of origin story. Right? That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. It really does. It really does because it's like, um, you know, this is this is who I literally came from. Um, this is who my family literally comes from, right? Um, are these people who um, are committed and who worked with their hands, were farmers, do you know, who come from a history and legacy of indentured servitude, mm-hmm. you know? And, and, and by indentured, I mean that generation. <laughs> because of circumstances of their living. So the generation before them, right, were enslaved. Yeah. And to know that, wow, this is this is close. This is not <laughs> this is not hundreds of hundreds of hundreds of years ago of an idea. No, no. Okay, this is really this is my family. Okay, okay. Well, it I'm- makes it more real and tangible. You know. It does. And I feel like it's important in order to be able to understand what's happening um, politically in this country Mm. in this moment in 2021. Mm. Mm. Understanding how close Mm. um, that that, that history is, right? Mm -hmm. Like for me, Mm -hmm. both of my grandmothers were raised, at least in part, by their grandmothers who were born into enslavement, right? And I knew those grandmothers growing up. You know, so in the same way that you're telling your story, it's it's present in my story, it's present in all of our stories. And it helps us understand how actually, how fragile the sense of of democracy That's right. we're currently existing in is. What real yeah. equity looks like and how, mm. how young, mm. how young this, any semblance of racial justice is. Mm. Totally, completely, because we can see it. <laughs> it's not just a figurative, you know, talking point. Like when you can see it in your family, mm-hmm. not even just the results of it, but you can have that real tangible tracing conversation. It becomes far more than just the notion. And then it roots the work. It roots yeah. the work. In a very different yeah. kind of way yes. because of yes. that presence and because of That's that through right. line of, of ancestry and lineage. That's right. Yes, completely. Completely. Um, I, I feel that. I, I operate from that. Um, you know, it's funny because it's. I think it's why I also love being in the arts. Um, I think that there's a real... You know, being an artist is really this opportunity to, like, create vision possibility with a blank slate. I mean, there's that's literally what you do. I mean, looking at your artwork, like literally you work on a blank page and you're able to build. Yeah. And that's for me is also a tangible way to bring the presence of my history, my people in a very tangible way, right? Like in a very tangible way with my work, um, in a very tangible way with, with, with storytelling, 
with why storytelling is important. Um, not only rooting for my ancestors, but also knowing that um, people will look back at this moment, people will look back at this work um, to understand their ancestors, right? Like that's 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 what's connecting us, right? Mm-hmm. Like in this very like the, how this ring is tangible. Our work is that's that's a connecting point. People are going to say, oh, wow, okay, so this is what they were feeling. This are the circumstances that they were living under. You know, these were the pressure points that they were ultimately negotiating with. Um, these are the stories this, that are surrounding, surrounding the circumstance he had. Like, that's important to me, so important. I think it's such a critical point to, to really sit with, right? Because, you know, this idea of making art and archive simultaneously right understanding that we're speaking you know between generations and that we're creating i i often think of lineage for instance as this idea of like capturing these moments in amber you know like this this era that we're living through that's so historic like let's just freeze an hour where we're talking with great intentionality about what it means to be black and creating a future for ourselves that connects back to that past because that's how we do, right? What does it mean to be living through this moment and how can we hold it? Wow. You know, it's this, you know, I think when things happen in our world, um, it's important that we record so that we never forget you know, and, you know, it's funny, I was having this conversation with my mom um, the other day, right, who grew up in Jamaica, and we were t- talking about this, we were having this debate about history, we're having the debate, I think it was about the Queen and the whole Meghan Markle thing and the yeah. monarchy. And, you know, it's funny, because she always talks about, you know, as growing up in Jamaica, she grew up at a time when the monarchy still ruled the island. So her history that she learned was literally directly from England. And so there was almost, a, um, you know, the philosophy behind, you know, how history was framed from her was from that gaze. Yeah. Where, so it's so apparent that, you know, me now, growing up in a very different generation, in a very different time, in a very different culture, with a very different perspective, you know, we, we always have these very healthy debates because of how our own, whether it's our country's history, was framed for us. Um, and so, yeah, it's I, I, I just think about that, you know, because I think it's important that therefore motivates me even further of like the why we're building work and what do we want to make sure to frame for future generations and even just for our culture now to make sure that our voice is in the games, um, um, in the cultural zeitgeist, that our perspective of what's happening in this world now. Um, so, you know, however you want to describe, you know, black, progressive, young, this generation, whatever, that it is representative um, in our cultural conversation. Yeah. I want to pivot to another um, yeah. moment that really rooted you, um, and that is Howard University. 
the mm. Mecca in the 90s. Can you talk to me? Paint yes. a picture for me of, of what Howard was like then. Yeah, Howard was... Um, you know, it was like a, it was for me at that time, it was like a real utopia. Um, you know, I think I, I, I went to Howard because a different world, that series, <laughs> TV series. That's a large reason why like, I went to Spelman. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Like that in yeah, school that's days. That's why I made that. Uh-huh. School days, exactly. That in school days, those two things. That's all I needed. Like, yeah, that's how I'm going to make my college decision. <laughs> um, and, and, and shy and shy was out at that time and they went to Howard. Oh my but God. Just, shy. Why have I not right. thought about shy in years? Cause they only had that one song, but that was, song though, they made it the count. Song hit. <laughs> they really do. They really do. If I ever yeah. fall in love, if I ever fall in love, they went yes. to Howard. That was it. And <laughs> so I think, you know, that experience for me was everything. It was everything. I mean, again, like stepping on that campus as a kid from Chicago, like you, I, I was like, it's just a sea of blackness mm-hmm. and different kinds of black people and interesting black people. And, um, do you know, undefinable, like just varying from all different walks of life. That was, um, that was gold to me. And, um, you know, I felt like a kid in a candy store, um, you know, because, there was, yeah, there were just, it was, it was, it was like utopia during that time, you know, and then, you know, having pivotal moments. I mean, we didn't realize how pivotal, you know, Biggie was going to be on the culture, but like at that time, having like artists like that step through, but at the same time, you know, there's lectures given by Mary Baraka on one day or like, you know, Spike Lee doing a masterclass at the mm-hmm. communication school on another day. Um, like I definitely it was super significant and a moment of utopia and now looking back on it I realize how truly transformative that camp that campus was and that moment in time was for me um like truly transformative you know again being on a campus that sit and walked and breathed sort of this incredible legacy um, but also, like, breathed this in kind of content, con- incredible, like, contemporary culture. Describe who you were as a college student. I'm a, I, mm. I don't know this to be true, but I think that that's where Killer Cam came from. Am I right? <laughs> oh, yes, yes, yes. Oh, my gosh. Okay, so, yeah. I, I guess if I was describing myself, I mean, I was in a theater kid. So I was like, you know, I was so influenced by also Lauren Hill, mm-hmm. you know, and De La Soul and Tribe. So I was like a figure to kid, but also like this hip hop kid, you know, but because Lauren was out, you know, at that time, you know, I was always with my, you know, head wraps, my baggy jeans, you know, one of those like, um, shirts tied around the waist um you know the baggy shirt and the dark lipstick and just like incense and vibes that was me (laughs) on campus (laughs) so you know i was at the poetry jams you know i was at the speakeasies you know and then i was at the hip-hop clubs too you know yeah so it was like it was i i I lived in sort of that cross-section of kids on campus but yeah so my first killer cam was a manifestation. <laughs> my first name came as when I thought I was like, okay, so I'm in this world. Yeah, I think I'm a. I think maybe I'll be a DJ. I was dating a DJ at the time, uh-huh. so it was um, DJ K Profile. Then I joined a rap group. Um, actually, joined a rap group with Tony Blackman. 
and okay. it was called Daughters of the Cypher. Yeah, yeah. There were 12 of us. Um, Tony called us. We were trying to be like the female Wu-Tang. And um, <laughs> yeah, but like with, with like incense and vibes. We were Daughters of the Cypher. <laughs> daughters of the Cypher. Uh, so my name in that group was Kendrick. I did. And, 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 and then I did a spin-off <laughs> of that group, myself and my homegirl, Meredith, who is from New Jersey, and are still kindred, but my name, our group name was Shy Garden, Shy Town, and she was from Jersey, Garden State, so Shy Garden. Got it. And then post that, then it was like, ah, kill a cam. I don't know. I just, I don't know where this aggressive notion came from. Maybe, <laughs> I don't know. It's just, that just, that just is what stuck. So those were some years. Yeah. Those were some years. Oh my God. I love it. But one of the things that I think is definitely very true about HBCUs is this idea of, of meeting your people, you know, like literally in, in the curriculum and then also like in the friendships that you build that last and those mm-hmm. and those foundations, like those creative foundations in, in your case as an artist, you know, that have gone on to to become part of your your life as an adult. So talk to us about about the folks that you were running with back in the day and and the and how you've continued to work with them in the years since sure so um you know there were a lot of people i met in the theater department um who i worked with um folks like susan kalechi watson who was a part of the film we were partners in that film between the world and me she's a co-ep um you know folks like also um you know chad uh, Bozeman, we wrote plays together, performed in plays together, directed each other in plays, and continue to do so, um, to work together. Um, folks like Logan Coles, who became Chad's producing partner, um, we continue to work and build, um, find alignment together. Um, folks like Tanahasi. Um, Tanahasi was writing for the school paper, and he wasn't in fine arts, but he also was a poet. So I actually would book him for our poetry events on campus. Oh, wow. Um, and then we, you know, um, and I remember writing plays, and I'd ask him to write the foreword for one of, this, uh, one of the plays we wrote, actually a play that Chad and I wrote, and Chad started in. Tanahasi wrote the, the the preamble right notes in, in, in the play program, um, so we always you know this is our tribe. This is how we were like building and growing, you know, um, from then on until and and continues and that continues. I mean, I think we we lean on each other because we find them. Um, there is, you know, maybe it's because we're all a part of each other's origin story, hmm. so there's a trust shared vision um but there's something to be said about knowing someone or working with someone who knows you when you didn't even know yourself you know like when you were still just finding yourself um there's a there's a real trust factor there so you know we um so it's a pleasure actually to continue to work with these people um up until today like not only as friends i mean as like colleagues but also as friends and now you all have gone on to form the Freeland Collective. Yes. <laughs> Can you tell us about that? Uh, oh my gosh! It was yes. It was out of a Zoom meeting with a bunch of other people, and we were again during lockdown playing game night, and uh, in our game nights, 
you know, that we would do on Saturday. And who's a part of that? Um, ben Talton, um, who's also historian, educator, also from Howard. Logan's on that Zoom night. Greg Alvarez, who's in the film, was on, was on a Zoom. And so we became, we started, there was a, we were playing, was it charades or categories? <laughs> and one of the answers, Ben and his wife, Janae, who was with LDF, she's um, Associate Director Council of LDF. And so she, they came up with something. One of their answers was free the land. It was, I can't remember the question, but it was so like pro-Black, but also so like had nothing to do with what the questions that were being asked <laughs> that it stuck <laughs> like stuck like okay well well this is free the land collective uh, and so that somehow really helped to shape and form this very informal group um and continues to shape and form this very sort of informal group um and um and and this game night and you know, black people, we always got to come up with a name. We always got to, you know, come up with a group name, a tagline, something. Otherwise it ain't so real. That, right? Like something, FTL, free the land. You know what I mean? So now it's like always like sticking with this group. Um. One of the things that's really struck me as I'm looking at like the overview of your career is that you're working in so many different um, mediums, you know? So you have the theater, you have the TV, you have... Um, uh, the podcast that you've just started with with Bamuti and and Paula um, Prestini. So you're you're arts administrator and also artist in so many different ways. How do you um, how do you describe the connective tissue in your in your career? Mm. I think that for me, the connective tissue with everything is always this idea of really building art with purpose that moves people, but not only just for moving purposes, but really moves people to act, is really what I think like, you know, there's always sort of this theme and thread for me of like activism, artivism in my work. Um, Identity politics. Um, So I think if I could describe anything that sort of connects, it's that I think I love living also in the crossroads. Mm. I love living in the crossroads. I love the way you phrase that. When I think about, you know, as an artist, my aesthetic, it's always in the crossroads. When I think about even my work at the Apollo, I think about, you know, the Apollo being a a place in which popular culture and whatever you want to call other performing arts culture connect. Mm-hmm. Like we live in that crossroads as an institution. I always like to say where we can present Bill T. Jones and Teddy Riley in the same season and it all makes sense. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, like I love that. <laughs> um, so I think that's like also the connective tissue is like I'm always looking for where are those crossroads and how can we how can we live right there at the intersection? That's such a beautiful way to put it. I, I realized when I was looking at who you've collaborated with, I was like, probably more than anybody else in the lineage family that immediately springs to mind. You've worked with um, so many of the other artists who are part of this project, right? Like you have, as I mentioned, the the podcast with Bamuti, and also you've worked with him theatrically. You know, you've worked with Jason Moran musically. Yeah. He was part of the Between the yeah. World and Me staging at the Apollo in 2018. Um, you directed... Uh, by the way, Meet Vera Stark by Lynn Nottage, you know. Yeah. 
Um, And so it's like this, this, this epic of kind of interdisciplinary collaboration seems to be a hallmark of your work. Yes. Yes, 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 you said it. Oh, you should write my bio. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I do because I need to rewrite it. I, I got to figure out a way to talk about it. But yes, it's interdisciplinary mm-hmm. collaborations. And I think that's, I, again, yeah. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm curious about that. I'm curious about new forms. Um, I'm curious about, you know, different people collaborating. And I, and I think there's a lot of that even in Between the World and Me, this the version on stage and also in um, in and and film is that again it was an opportunity to collaborate with visual artists um, with Tanahasi, a writer, um, you know, with musicians, with storytellers, with activists. Um, like that's that's what's really exciting to me um, is you know putting bringing all these pieces to the stew and allowing it to cook down and then finding and then and then and then ultimately then our job then becomes that how do we find the thread and discover the thread in between us all and that becomes the exciting point mm. like that that moments of discovery like oh wow i'm connecting this and this oh my god right real moments of true discovery happens when you bring two disparate pieces of a puzzle together like it's almost like bringing two ends of a puzzle together and then our job is to find our way, fill in the in-between. Oh, I love it. Are there, who are the models, um, the inspiration, the people who you would see yourself in, in their artistic lineage that, that guide what you do? Mm. I, I would say maybe mentors um, or, or artistic lineage. I would say folks like, um, Vinette Carroll, a Caribbean American, um, first black woman to direct on Broadway. I would say, um, artistic lineage of sitting in the crosswords, uh, across roads who inspire me like of, um, Morrison. Um, and I, I would say her as an inspiration. Um, uh, when I just think what she does with how she makes language dance. Mm-hmm. how she sits in this space of being unapologetically black um, is an inspiration to me. Um, Intozaki, um, you know, how her work, when I think of her colored girls, when I think of the indefinable um, categories um, where that work still sits, excites me. Yeah, let's see those. And coming up next, you're set to direct the Broadway premiere of Soul Train. Yeah. Tell us about that project. Well, I'm just excited to work with three women who I just, two women who I'm just completely in awe of. And that's Dominique Morceau and Camille Brown. Like they just, they're just badass. So I just, I'm, you know, we're unfortunately due to the pandemic, you know, we're, um, things are on where we're trying to figure out how to rev things back up. But, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, look, it's just exciting to work on this project that will be interdisciplinary. That's just black, <laughs> you know, celebrates a black institution. <laughs> you know, that's just black, 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 black. You know, I love that. I love it. I love it. 
I keep oh, hearing Jill Scott in my head where she's like, black ass. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. 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 I love it. Because that's really part of the work, right? Like defining right. What, what, what a black aesthetic is in, 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 that's right. in 2021. That's right. That's right. Yeah. That's exactly right. Yeah. I'm proud of you, sis. Oh, my goodness. Well, thank you. Well, first of all, it's an honor to be interviewed by you. Mm-hmm. Because like I say, I just think you're so incredibly brilliant. And and this project is is brilliant. going to continue to be brilliant. So it is an honor. It is a complete honor. Shana, yeah. For real. No, I'm I'm really grateful to be in community together. Um, yeah, and it feels good, you know, in doing this work to know that you're 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 walking in partnership and in lockstep with with you know your folk. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely, and with you, and, and with, with you. you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, sis. Appreciate you. And thanks for spending so much Appreciate time today. You. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps others discover the show. You can also follow us on the socials at Lineage Podcast and visit lineagepodcast.com for more information about this project and to watch the new meditative film, We Hold These Truths. It features reflections on ancestry from season two lineage guests and was produced in partnership with Park Avenue Armory. The Lineage logo was designed by Tony Moore Images, and the show's theme music is composed by Cody Gottbeats. For more from me, head on over to shawneejamila.com. And stay tuned right here. New episodes drop every other Tuesday.